1: Mm, mm, mm. visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be convenient, comfortable Ah.
2: okay picture this it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road with available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Welcome to episode 575 with my guest, Connor Franta. I'm Paul Gilmartin. I don't know why I'm drawing my name out there. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for nut jobs. Like myself. I am not a therapist. Uh, This is not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. It doesn't suck. Uh, The social media handles uh, are at MentalPod and MentalPod.com, also the website. Go there. Visit it. Browse. There's a forum. You can fill out surveys anonymously. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. Maybe not. Maybe we'll spite you. That started out dark. Let's jump into some uh, some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself, I love it when the world stops. And he asks, how do you avoid the inevitable conclusion that, quote, it's because of who I am, unquote. Uh, I've had some objectively difficult things happen to me in my life, but nothing awful. My parents are more prone to panic, anxiety, and overthinking than anyone I have ever met, but extremely loving and supportive. My sister is very highly strung and has suffered with depression. I think my depression is because of several outside events or things that came into my life by bad luck and another roll of the universe's dice, they wouldn't have. But there are examples of people who have been able to handle similar things, whereas I am crushed by them. I can't get over them. I can't feel good in spite of them. And I blame all my other behavior on them. I'm lazy. I'm terrified of tomorrow. All I really want is to be able to do nothing every day guilt-free. I tell myself I would have dreams and ambitions and a work ethic if those things hadn't happened to me, but I don't know if that's true. When the pandemic hit and the world stopped, I felt genuinely happy. I'm 32 and it was easily the happiest and most content I have felt since I was a teenager. If I can be happy in those circumstances, then am I really, really depressed? The logical conclusion I came to is that I find the world difficult because of who I am, because of everything that has led me to be who I am today, because of my genes. The scale of changing that feels too difficult. Thank you so much for that question, and I think so many people relate to that, myself included. When my depression is bad... Um, everything feels overwhelming i feel a sense of the, just the the universe's clock ticking and that i am just wasting my life and i'm a failure and i'm weak and i've been blessed with all these opportunities and i'm letting them pass me by i know having battled depression and addiction etc long enough that that is generally my depression rearing its head because I don't take enjoyment in the things that I do when I'm when I'm feeling well and I felt the same way when the pandemic hit I felt like the outside world finally reflected how I felt inside which was a sense of doom fear um it 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 no longer felt like there was any dissonance it felt like it was just uh like everything made sense, like everybody else now felt like how I felt inside, which was a a sense of unease and doom. And yeah, so I very much relate to this. And what I wanted to say, and one of the reasons why I wanted to read this is I think there is a certain amount genetically wired into us to be who who we are that's not going to change. But I think there are parts of us that are malleable. You know, the brain has a neuroplasticity to it um, that can be rewired through therapy and support groups and um, all kinds of different things. And so what I try to do is I try to work on those things. I can't predict what's going to change, what I'm going to get better at, what I'm going to backslide with... But I just keep trying to do those things, prayer, meditation, going to my support groups, eating healthy, exercising, having a, a support network of people I can be honest with, as well as people that I can try to help. And if I'm still feeling depressed, then I know that it's, it's my depression, and so sometimes uh, I'll, I'll talk to my psychiatrist we'll adjust my meds and I'm in a really good place right now where we uh, I, I realized that some of the anxiety that I was feeling was because my wellbutrin was too was too high and so we tapered that back and um, and I'm feeling great and more productive and and I think therapy uh, I got back into therapy and I think that's helping with my productivity as well so you know that's kind of a long answer but, I hope the I hope you feel less alone having having heard that. Uh, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, felt filled, <laughs> filled out by Shaquille Oatmeal, and uh, she asks, "Somebody gives you billboard space for free. What do you put on it?" Well, that's simple: a big picture of Herbert's butthole. For those of you that don't know, Herbert is my late dog. Uh, not meaning he's. He was due here a while ago, meaning he's dead. Well, oh, that sounds so harsh. So yeah, big picture of Herbert's butthole, and then underneath it, uh, the caption says, guess who's coming to dinner? <laughs> uh, Would you rather have a horrible case of hemorrhoids or severe gingivitis for the rest of your life? Well, that's a no-brainer. I don't want severe gingivitis because then your breath stinks and nobody wants to hear you uh, drone on and on about yourself. Uh but you know, with the hemorrhoids, it's painful to sit down. You got to have a, you know one of those hemorrhoid donut pillows you carry around. Uh, but maybe you personalize it, you make it sassy. Maybe you get an American flag and people go, "Wow, there's a patriot." Or maybe you just embrace the fact that you can't sit down and you go live your normal life, but you do it standing up. you go to the dentist right there, eye to eye with him, get on a roller coaster, standing up, I'm not sure how that would work, and you blow all your money on comfy shoes. I want to give a shout out for uh, a podcast that a friend of mine does. Uh, she's been a guest uh, a couple of times on the podcast, uh, Breanne Davis, and she, uh, she has a podcast out uh, that's awesome. It's called uh, Secret Life, and uh, she also has a book out. Called Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. And it is a really unflinching quasi memoir uh, about uh, battling sex and love addiction. And it is not only compelling, but it has helped a lot of people. So now she has a podcast that kind of continues in the similar vein, but it's about, you know, love, sex, money, food, addiction, a lot of taboo stuff. And it's just got a great tone. It's funny. It's uplifting. It's hopeful. And uh, I think you guys would, would really enjoy it. Uh, she has on uh, celebrities, anonymous listeners, friends, and uh, she has a lot to, to share. And she's just a good, good soul. So check it out. Secret Life Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself starving artist. She writes, my narcissistic father has always used his children, myself, to boost his ego. When our appearance isn't to his standards, he puts us down horribly and publicly, almost as a way of shaming us, it sounds like absolutely a way of shaming you. My whole life he has called me out on, quote, flaws that are actually his own personal insecurities. It's taken me 40 years to realize that. The scars of his words cut deep and I am left with zero self-esteem. How do I overcome the voices he has engraved in me throughout my life? Awesome question. And I'm sorry that that was your experience and your and your childhood. That fucking blows. Um, and that is such a huge question with no simple answer other than try every kind of thing that you can to begin to rewire that mean voice in your brain. It's so instilled in us because, you know, it was laid in there for 18 years, at least, if not longer. So it's going to take some while. It gets put in in layers, and it's got to be unwired or rewired in layers. And I still battle with a negative Voice in my head, uh, whether it was put there by my parents or I put it there myself, or peers, or you know whatever. Um, the the important thing is to just take little baby steps and in, in trying to to rewire that. And we can we can rewire our brains. I feel different about myself now than I did twenty years ago. I hate myself more. <laughs> no, I I would dare say, I've got some some self-love going on. Ooh, that made me sick. Uh, This is also from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a guy who calls himself fed up. He writes, I'm a 50-year-old straight married man. Many of my friends act like prepubescent boys when they're socializing with me and women are not present. They make unsolicited, sexually explicit, and disgusting comments about any women in their field of vision, even though I find it distasteful and I don't participate. I've experienced the same behavior repeatedly with my male friends of all ages and it interferes with the quality of these friendships. These behaviors and comments occur spontaneously in normal places like museums, public parks, parks, etc. and not in bars or pickup joints and often are an interruption to a non-related serious or intellectual conversation or recreational activity these friends are participating in with me. All of the men acting this way are in respected professions, educated, and married with children. These men also become incredibly distracted whenever a decent-looking female of any age comes into view. Their focus changes, their tone of voice changes, they become agitated, and they lose interest in the interaction they are having with me. This behavior seems absurd to me as many times there isn't even a possibility of social contact with these women or even the possibility of them coming closer to us than 50 feet. I also have a hard time taking his friends seriously because this is the type of behavior I engaged in when I was a preteen, not as an adult. What do you think about this? Well, I think that it is sadly all too common, and uh, I used to be one of those guys, uh, and I can only speak for myself and say I was fucking insecure, I needed validation, and I would use anything around me to do that. I would make fun of of anybody, whether it was you know, to their face or behind their back, because I just wanted approval. I was a child in a man's body. And it sounds like that is the same thing with these guys and it and it really sucks. So, the, the, you know, the question to ask yourself is do you want to continue hanging out with these guys? You can't change them. It's not up to you. I mean, you can speak your mind and say, you know, that that, that was kind of childish, that was rude or that makes me uncomfortable. But at a certain point, you got to decide am, am I going to uh, accept that these guys are the way they are um or am i going to find a, a different group of friends and uh, you know it, it's um it's such a fine line between speaking up for ourselves and anointing ourselves uh, the world's teacher and that's why it's such a great question so uh thank you for that one we are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com online therapy. I get so much out of it. I love not having to leave my house. Um, my therapist Heidi is is helpful. She's really helping me with my pro- productivity. I don't think I've ever been in a better creative space than I've been the the last month, and uh, it feels it feels really good. Um, BetterHelp is licensed in all 50 states. Who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll add another state and they'll be licensed in all 51. That was weird. Uh, so go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire and you can experience 10% off your uh, first month of counseling. And I'm just a, I'm a real fan of it. And I need it because I'm a nut job and it helps me. What do you think of that? betterhelp.com/mental. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. And then finally, this is from the Ask Paul Anything, uh, filled out by Feisty Scientist, and she said, how do you cope when you're flooded with negative and unconstructive criticism or berated by opinions from folks who seem to want to watch the world burn? Well, what I recommend is as quickly as possible, you finish opening the presents.
4: Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. And when you find them, it's a great
3: feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside.
4: Ah, you're in the right place.
3: I'm here with a writer, f- blogger, photographer, <laughs> Connor shaking his head, like, whatever. <laughs> Human being, <laughs> it's uh, a Connor one. Franta. Um, we've never met mm-hmm. before, and... Uh, I don't know a tremendous amount about you because you have two books that, that came up before the the one that you just put out, the one that's sitting on my table right here in front of you uh, called House Fires. And a lot of your personal stuff was in those first two books, uh, talking about depression, coming out as queer. Um, what, what are some other big pieces of uh, your life that, that we could talk about that you've shared with um, – People that either follow you on social media or things you share with friends.
4: No, oh, definitely. I mean, uh, I've been kind of in the the internet sphere for a decade now. So I feel like I have both a grasp on what it's like to be out of it as well as in it. Because it, it, when I first joined it, social media wasn't, it was like a budding, uh, a budding medium essentially so i joined it and not many of my friends were on it no one knew really at the time like what tumblr was what barely what twitter was frankly so being a part of that and kind of being able to walk both lines was really was really interesting it was like a very singular experience in a a small town in the midwest and then uh and then i started blowing up on it and getting a lot of followers and that was even more singular because no one in my town even knew what that meant or what Mm -hmm. i didn't even know what that meant uh so yeah, my life kind of began in a weird way at that moment. Uh, but as for like bits of my story, since my life kind of started in a, in a way at that point when I was 19, 20, moving to Los Angeles away from my small town in the Midwest, that's also where I started understanding myself in a in a greater a greater way. I started understanding um, myself as a, a fresh out of the closet gay man as a a person who realized he, he had struggled with depression and anxiety undiagnosed for many years probably because of the the closeted experience in the midwest and not ever thinking it was okay to just be yourself and along that entire ride i was also in the spotlight as like one of the main figures in social media one of the first people not the first but one of the the first to be so from social fame to semi-mainstream fame,
0: mm-hmm.
4: and it was just a really unique experience to have an identity crisis while I was being recognized as an identity. Wow that
3: that <laughs> that is uh, a handful. Yeah, that is a handful. Um, talk about the parts of fame that the 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 person who's never experienced it but has fantasizes about it. <laughs> Give them some snapshots <laughs> of the moments of it uh, to help temper their excitement about the idea of, of fame.
4: Totally. I mean, like, so listen, I, I like to think I have a, a real grasp on reality. I go back home to the Midwest often. Uh, I, my friend's words are like, you don't change that often. So I, I like to think that I'm humbled by the experience while still planted in reality to some extent. But it's... It's a strange thing. I mean, a lot of people like to say, like, you knew what you were getting yourself into. Like, isn't that the goal, to put out art and to be famous for it? And like, not really, especially social media fame. At the time, it was non-existent. So I had no idea what I was getting myself into. You just
3: wanted to express
4: yourself? It was the first time I had ever found something that I cared so deeply about, aside from athletics. And it was the first time I dove into the arts. It was the first time I picked up a camera, learned how to edit, learned how to photograph. All of that was self-taught from YouTube. So I learned it on YouTube. And then I started being like, well, if I like the platform, I might as well just put stuff out for fun. Who cares? And then it started getting views. And I was like, oh, I forgot that that's a side effect of putting things out as people watch it and consume it and care about it. So it was like a whole different... whole different beast to tame but in terms of like fame i i never i never considered myself a someone who enjoyed being in the spotlight i was never a part of theater i never liked being on the stage although i dreamt of it so to find myself on a very big stage and to be recognized in public to be invited to events and movie premieres when it really wasn't something i was used to it was it it was just a lot. It was like sensory overload. You always felt like you were being watched and you always felt like a little bit insecure about mm-hmm. your body and your presence because of this idea that someone may be looking at you that you don't know. When I had my anonymity growing up, you just don't really necessarily think someone's staring at you in a coffee shop. But mm-hmm. when you have any level of fame, there's always just this like itch of like what if someone's watching me right now and am i doing something weird and if i have an interaction with someone what if they somehow know me and what if it wasn't a good interaction and what if they talk about it later like it's just like a weird yeah. unrelatable thing that maybe is fueled by anxiety or depression or maybe it's an actual just side effect of fame, who knows? It it's surprising
3: you know i was um on a tv show for 16 years, and the little sliver of fame and recognition that I got from that made me realize that I, I did not, for the most part, did not want to be more recognizable than I was. I realized how awesome anonymity can be. And yeah, there's perks to somebody saying, Oh, you know, uh I love your show, here's two free tickets to, you know, to come see such and such. That shit is
4: fucking great. I love a free coffee, I love yes. a free donut, and yes. a completely unexpected of just like, oh no, we got it. I'm yeah. like, oh shit, like that's really sweet. Yeah. Didn't yeah. expect that at all. A
3: nice person that wants to take a selfie and they're super excited. Uh yeah. cute. Wholesome. Really, really nice. But the, the, the thing that began to to wear on me, and I couldn't see it at the time, was how self-obsessed I, I became.
4: I've been saying that a lot I on became. this book tour, of like, I'm sick of talking about myself. Yeah, yeah.
3: I heard Michael Stipe uh, in an interview say that it takes him, when he comes home from touring, it takes him about two to three months to become a normal human again that isn't just consumed with himself. mm Interesting.
4: I, I mean, I feel that to a certain extent as well. Of just, I mean, but that's also. It's like no wonder you feel that way. It is. I mean, I wrote a book about myself. Of course, I have to talk about myself. But it isn't a normal human experience to right. care so much about every, or to think that other people care so much about every word that you say right. and right. hold it above someone else. So give
3: me give me some moments, if you can think of any, that uh, you know, kind of the balloon of mm. all of fame is going to be awesome if there are any
4: um i don't think that it's there wasn't necessarily one big moment or one moment where i was like i wish i could undo this it was more of just this this longing to be somewhere in the middle i guess to there's the or this like anxiety around will i ever be able to have that level of normality mm. uh Ever again, so there was never like one big moment. I I think, luckily, I've never been someone who's been like uh, berated or attacked online. So there's never like a big moment of I really messed up, I really fucked up. I wish I could go back. It was more of is this? I've seen. I kept. I kept writing about like I've seen so much of life so quickly because it's been gifted to me unintentionally through this process is it as exciting moving forward? Have I almost like used all of the best parts or seen all the best parts so quickly and so suddenly that now everything else seems like I've I've been there, done that in a weird way? So having that realization and having that negative thought spiral was kind of a pivotal point, I think, in me me wishing I almost like could undo certain parts of it or I could... I could slow down the process or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, experience it in a different way. I've I've
3: always thought that the best if you if you could be super famous, the best fame would be to to be an author that nobody recognizes because mm. then you'd have the money. You could pull out your name yeah. when you needed it. But you could be left alone,
4: like a voice actor or something. Someone, yes, someone who's done—I um, forget their name—the person who did the voice of like SpongeBob has also done the voice of dozens of other Tom, cartoons. Tom Kenny, yes, who yeah, and, yeah.
3: Is it actually a, a a friend of mine and a <laughs> super down-to-earth guy.
4: Well, it's like I couldn't pick him out of a crowd. But if he spoke right. like SpongeBob, I'd be like, yeah, oh my god, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd be starstruck. Yeah.
3: Such a such a talented, yeah, guy. yeah, um,
4: <laughs> yeah. Nothing like that.
3: So. Paint a picture of growing up
4: in the Midwest, and when did it it uh, dawn on you that you were gay? So I, my town. I'll paint a picture of my town because I actually, I. The more I get away from it, the more I realize how beautiful it is. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. Uh, typical cliche. But I grew up in a a tiny town in the Midwest with about 4,000 people. I went to uh, a small private school outside of that town with a population of 400 people. Mm -hmm. And my grade, my graduating class of eighth grade going into high school, Had six people, (laughs) so let's just (laughs) let's just show you like the spectrum of humanity that I saw. All right, represented in six all white white boys. Wow, all of us, six white boys, all in this small little farming town. Our school was beneath a Catholic church, like that. Like it's Mm -hmm. that's the that was how I saw the world, and I always had a longing for it to be a little bit different. But I also knew that I didn't have it so bad. it was really peaceful. It was really beautiful. It was really simple. You know, you were really sheltered, I think, from reality in all its many forms. Um, not even the harshness necessarily, but just like that the fact that we're in the small town is, is actually really lucky. The fact that we know everyone here is really lucky. And the fact that it happens to actually be beautiful is also really mm-hmm. lucky. But it did create this this, isolate, this isolating feeling. That came with me being like, what else is out there in the world? And when you start having an identity crisis at roughly age 11 is when I started having thoughts that I could be, you know, I wouldn't even necessarily say it was gay at the time. It was just more of like, I'm different. I know I'm different. There's something different about me. And then starting to think that it could be gay. I didn't even know what that word meant. I just know. That's what people told me um, Mm -hmm. liking men was. And then also I knew that it was synonymous with we don't talk about this. This is wrong. This is negative. Mm -hmm. So there's no joy in being that. So if you think you're that, don't tell anybody. Don't talk about it. And was
3: the the F word thrown around?
4: Honestly, I don't remember. And maybe I blocked it out. I don't remember. I don't really remember ever hearing Mm -hmm. it. I'm sure. I'm sure people said it around me, or I'm sure boys did, but I, like, I I have this, like, strange, it's probably, like, rose-colored glasses around my high school experience in that I don't think we had too many divisions within our high school because it was so small. Mm -hmm. It seemed like most people got along with most people, not everyone, obviously, but there wasn't a lot of, you know, a lot of, like, bullying or a lot of otherness necessarily. Mm -hmm and maybe that was my position in the high school because I felt like I could kind of walk between worlds in a way. Um, so not, not that it was more of just, I knew that no one talked about it and I knew when people did, it was whispered. Mm-hmm. It was whispered.
0: gay. It was gay. Mm-hmm. Like, it,
4: And I'm like, so something's wrong about it. I don't want to be that. I'm going to pretend I'm not. Maybe there's a way to like not be it. Maybe it's just a thought that'll fade away with the wind. But like most of those things you just it just I remember like closing my door at night every night and just thinking about it all night long and getting in 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 my tiny little bedroom in the basement of our house just being like I am isolated I am surrounded by four white walls I am the only person in this town that feels this way no one in the world feels this way it's just me <laughs>
3: <laughs> And did you ever have suicidal ideation
4: Yes I um not as much I would say as a kid I think it was when You add on the anxiety of a growing, um, like my growing career online. So you start adding in all that pressure, as well as an identity crisis. That all of that combine, I think that's where essentially my my blossoming of depression occurred. Was in one of was in that moment of just too much sensory overload, and that led me to have suicidal ideation. But I never felt. Like it was possible for me to actually do it. It was one of those things where it's like there's a person behind you whispering it to you, mm-hmm. but you know it's not you. You know it's someone behind you, and even when you look at it and you can't see it, you know it's not real, but it's like it's just always there. It's just always latched on to you. So it gets scary more so of like, is there a point at which they can convince me? I don't want to, I never would. But is there a point at which my mind can convince itself to just do it? So that was was always a fear. Um, Probably 20s, early 20s, -hmm. um, and then like different points in my 20s, but nowhere recent, luckily. I think now that I've figured it out to a certain extent, it's not much of a thought.
3: What were the fears in coming out and when did you come out? how far into your um, career notoriety
4: was it? So I'm I came out roughly two years, a year and a half after I moved to Los Angeles. and going to a big city for the first time, um, I went to college for two years, but it was still a small school in the Midwest. So you know, you didn't really see too much difference difference there. But going to a big city, and living there for the first time especially a city that like i call like west hollywood is like the gay aorta of the united states right up there with san francisco it's like there there are just certain places that are much more represented and west hollywood is very much one of them rainbow sidewalks rainbow everything and seeing that seeing men holding hands seeing women kissing on the street Um, hearing the words like transgender and non-binary for the first time, I'm like, oh, it's like, it's not that big of a deal. (laughs) I started, as soon as I was confronted by it and I started making friends in the community, I was like, oh, it's like not, it doesn't have to be such a negative deal. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't even have to be your entire personality. It just could be, oh, that's just like, you have brown hair. You're gay. Like, it just can be a part of you. Um... So as soon as I recognized that, it very quickly, I very quickly became empowered with the idea of just owning it and seeing what happens after that. Because I was like, at the end of the day, like, it it is, it seems like it is what it is. I've been thinking this for roughly 10 years at that point. It's like it, I just got to do it. And I don't know, I honestly don't know where I got that courage. Because the more I think about it, I basically came out to the first person in my life at age twenty january of um, 2014 and then i came out to my entire internet following of roughly 3 million people in december of 2014 so that's a pretty fast process Mm -hmm. and i genuinely don't know how i did it and honestly part of me thinks i it's better that i didn't think about it too much in some strange way or i almost didn't understand it enough because at least, it, at least it put me on the right track or, like, the track towards my truth. Because maybe I don't understand what that truth is, but, like, the truth is the truth. I know it to be the truth.
3: And that's why they, they follow you, mm-hmm. is because there's some level of truth and honesty in your art. Mm. And it's so crazy that we would not want to reveal more of why people connect to us. That you know, what does that speak to? How
4: homophobic our society is? How insecure we are? I, I I don't know. I know. I find it really, the more, the older I get, the more I'm comfortable with myself, the more I understand how fluid being a human being is in general. I just, I, I think it's, I find it sad when people don't embrace difference, mm-hmm. but when people aren't open to the fact that like, every person is completely unique and when you find out about like a new subset of people like the you know the big topic of the last couple years has been they them pronouns non-binary people has been like a really big topic um the u.s issued its first passport with like a non-binary esque um gender marker on the on the passport and like the idea that that's not cool to people is so strange to me because I'm like yeah. that's fucking sick. Like the that people cannot identify as male or female, or that this now exists and you didn't know it last year. I'm like that's so cool. Like what else is there? What else out there is there? Yeah, it's it's so interesting how people feel threatened
3: by that, and you know I wonder where that comes from. Is its it is it, is it taught Mm. is there something tribal in Mm. us that has carried over since caveman ages that Mm. you know it's something buried in the amygdala that that reacts to that it's so interesting
4: yeah it is i mean i get it it's the fear of the unknown uh and i think when you don't know something it probably is it probably is you know built into us in some way to be to be scared Of it because we don't know what it is. But I think as soon as you let go of that fear and just accept that you don't know anything about the universe or what you know is just a sliver of it, it's so much more fun. It's so freeing. It's so fun. Like, I, it's just, it's just a much more enjoyable way to exist. And I feel like that's how I've gotten myself out of a lot of anxiety and depression is just embracing the unknown. And oddly enough, that was my, uh, my, my um, school's mission statement in my freshman year was embrace ambiguity. And although I didn't graduate from college, it stuck with me to embrace ambiguity. And I feel like I understand it more now, a decade later than I did at the time as yeah. kind of an unknowing freshman. And do you uh, identify as male or gender fluid? I'm male. I'm male. I'm a cisgender, white, male, gay man. Like, mm-hmm. um, but I also just like, I'm open and I'm open to that that changing in some way, part of me likes I love you know that we're embracing the word queer because it just says like i am I am different or I am this subset of the community, and that's good enough in some strange way, and I think that's all a lot of people are looking for is just knowing that they are are a little bit different or open to difference even to you know the questioning part of the queer community like i am questioning what i thought i knew to be a truth right which is like i it's a lot of brings a lot of people anxiety but i think again that can be fun it can be embraced it doesn't have to be scary yeah it kind
3: of surprised me when the word queer uh was embraced Mm -hmm. um by the lgbtq plus community because it had always kind of been a derogatory term Mm -hmm. um what What do you think led to that? Mm-hmm. Or was it just wanting to reclaim power? Like, you're not going to use this against us? I, I don't know.
4: I think so. I mean, I think it, it was reclaim it. reclaiming something that was never meant to be weaponized uh, and taking ownership of what could be used for good and be used as an identity Uh, and I mean, it just, I feel like it's opened the world up again to smaller subsets of the community that aren't represented as well. Um, that don't, didn't necessarily have a full, an identity. And they were like, no, I just, I just know I'm queer. I know I'm different. I know I'm a part of the community, but maybe I don't yet know which part, or maybe I am this part. So I found, yeah, when people started using it, I too was like, "Oh, isn't that isn't that like not a good thing? Isn't that a bad word? Almost like when I first heard the word gay was still like a lot of people would consider that a bad thing. So with anything, almost every identity within our community has been reclaimed to a certain mm-hmm. extent. I had a friend the other day talking about how she didn't want to identify as um, a lesbian because she thought the word lesbian was was negative, And she, you know, was my age and living in LA and she still felt so negative towards it and she didn't realize that it, wasn't. it was because people were telling her it was negative or people were telling her that to be a lesbian, you had to be a certain way, a specific thing. And she started realizing that, like, if she wanted to reclaim the word and reclaim her own identity, it it didn't have to be negative at all or she could reshape what she thought it was in some way. What was it like the first time you began saying out loud, I identify as gay? <laughs> Terrifying. So the first time... I probably said it at some point, maybe in high school, the word, but I can't. I The only times I actively remember saying it and claiming it as my own were the month leading up. So the January uh, or December 2013, 2014, and like doing the the really melodramatic looking in the mirror and just saying it and seeing how I feel about it. And it was, it it didn't roll off the tongue quite well. I didn't know how to say it. I didn't know how I felt about saying it. It made me feel gross. It made me feel other. uh, And it just didn't sound right. Do you remember what you felt in your body when you said it? I I remember feeling like a a physical... It was like a physical pushing back of myself. Like it felt almost like I was vomiting out the word and my body was expelling a poison in some way. And I didn't like it, although I knew it was right and again that speaks that speaks to homophobia that speaks mm-hmm. to the strong feelings that i developed over years around that word that i couldn't even say it like i couldn't even just say a word a word that to me at the time had no meaning i still just couldn't even say it it was so overwhelming
3: what, uh, two questions um what was it like the first time you said it to somebody mm. And I forgot to ask you this earlier. What was the attitude in your
4: family about gay? So the first time I had said it to somebody, it was a similar um, feeling of, I just like can't even say this. And I remember dancing around the topic for so long because I couldn't even get myself to say the words that they interpreted the (laughs) words because it took that long for me to say it that they were like... I'm aware what you're trying to say. Did you
3: did you communicate it through <laughs> interpretive dance?
4: <laughs> Basically, it was it was just a lot of hand motions. If you can see right now my hands are just spinning and it was it was almost embarrassing frankly that I'm like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I cannot get myself to say these words because at this point if I say it to another person, it is real. It is definitive, it is final." And that's how it felt at the time that like me saying this changes the course of my life forever. It felt so important and pivotal and terrifying. Um, but like most things, the more, the more you practice, the better you get at it. So it became easier with time and easier with practice and less scary and less (laughs) like I was going to throw up. Um, and no different from my, when I told my mom, my mom was my first family member. I told it she was visiting in Los Angeles. She was here for a week. I, I planned to tell her at some point during it, naturally put it off till the very end of the trip. truly. Till I was dropping her off at the airport, <laughs> like outside the airport, like we like so it wasn't technically it was the airport. It was like her hotel right next to the airport, and like dropping her off and being like, "Hey, bye." It was a great trip. Being like, <laughs> being like, "You failure, you fucking failure." I can't believe you couldn't do it. She was here for a whole week. You couldn't tell her, and she's walking away. And I, I like a mom knows things. Like I know she knew that I wanted to say something, so I was being weird. Um, But she was just like, okay, bye, hugged her. And then, like, she left. I did the whole very cinematic, just sat in the car watching her walk away, being like, do it, do it. So I just put it in park and I get out. I'm like, I need to tell you something. And I kind of run to her and tell her in the middle of the street and just like, I'm gay. And then, like, just kind of looked at the ground and didn't really say much after that. And she immediately, immediately followed up with, That's okay. Are you seeing anybody? How long have you known this? Oh, I'm sorry, you couldn't tell. Like immediately comforting, caring, curiosity. And I think the older I get, the more I am appreciative of the curiosity because that means she herself wasn't afraid of it. If it was just like, that's okay, and she left, fear. But the asking of the question presented, Mm -hmm. presented me with an opportunity to connect over it.
3: It reminds me of the opposite uh, reaction oh, no. Oh, no. that uh, uh, one of our uh, past guests, Dave Holmes, had. He came out to his mom, mm-hmm. uh, and she, you know, didn't—I I don't remember if she, if he said that she was silent, but a short while later, the phone rings. She doesn't even say, it's mom. She just says, what about a masculine woman? <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's because she's having an identity crisis yes. now of like i thought i was gonna have a son with a wife with kids and he'll never have kids because he's gay yeah so it's it's an identity crisis for and them how
3: well. are my friends gonna react oh without I a think. doubt
4: and i that was the only thing that um because it was new for my parents too they never had a gay kid before i don't even know if they had many gay friends if any um so it was new for them too, and that was the only thing that they did, quote unquote, a little bit wrong. Was there was hesitation when I was going to tell other people, because I mean, frankly, I get it now. I'm like, there was fear to that. They didn't know what that looked like for me, for them. It was a brand new thing for our family and for our community. Um, so I get it. Like I get it. I have empathy for that. It's tough. <laughs> no one wants. No one wants to be questioned or be be other or be othered (laughs) Mm -hmm. what do you remember feeling in your body
3: after you shared it with your mom and you could see that she was okay with it
4: visceral i told her and i basically was like cut the conversation very quickly it's just like cool i'm gonna leave because there's not much more to develop here i'm still figuring it out i guess you love me i love you gotta go kind of like ran away from it because my my body was it was like my atoms were like bouncing off of each other i just felt so tingly and so alive that like i i burned out driving away from her <laughs> and i i rolled down all the windows in my car and i turned on um a flume song which is like a techno dj and i just like floored it down the freeway i still know like i still have the song um can't, it's like i think it's a you and i or there's another one that i, I had two of them and um I was I just felt liberated. I felt so liberated that I had done it and I had and it was the beginning of something new. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I'm like I fucking did it. Like a decade of keeping a secret, a decade of being in my small room filled with anxiety over telling anyone or accepting this myself and I did it. What do you remember when you came out on social media? That that one was a little bit different because i so you you, i pre-filmed a video it was the era of the coming out video um one of the one of the first ish people to make a video like that there were people prior to me but it was definitely like a new age for i'd say between the years of like uh 2013 to 2015 or so there was like a flood of coming out videos of people getting the courage to post these videos and tell their stories so i was i was amongst that tidal wave and it's a very weird thing to do, to tell someone, to make an entire video telling someone something like that, that A, you don't know the people watching it, but you know that there's a lot of people that are going to be curious about it, and you don't really have the answers to it, nor do you have much of an explanation, it just is what it is. So filming the video was one thing, but then posting it and being able to see hundreds, thousands of of instant feedback was... Positive? Positive, but singular. No, not many people know that experience of telling something you've had anxiety about for years and years and years, and then immediately being able to see thousands of positive replies. It, it's, like an, I, it's not even an overwhelming feeling. It's like I turned to stone. I didn't know how to feel. It didn't feel real. I felt like I was out of my body. And I I almost like with anything I I almost didn't even it didn't feel good. I, I don't know what it felt, but I felt like I wanted to retreat into my room for weeks because I needed to process what that what that felt like. I couldn't you know it's it's I couldn't put words to what it was. It wasn't relief. It wasn't exciting. Really? It I think it took a while to feel relieved. Oh, I suppose because the feedback was rolling in. It was rolling in and you there's the there was this realization of Now what? Like I don't even really know what it means to be a gay man, an open gay man. I don't know what it means to be able to. Next video, if someone, if I am answering questions and someone says like, "Do you have a boyfriend?" I can I can answer that if I wanted. That's weird. I haven't even been able to say the word boy in a video. (laughs) Like (laughs) it's it's just like everything was new. Everything that I had I had held so close to my chest could be released but I didn't know what that would feel like or what that would mean. So it was just a lot. It was a lot. (laughs) Were there any negative responses? Not, I mean, I'm sure there were some in that video, but not many that stood out to me because the video got, has like 12 million views and like, like 150 000 comments on it something crazy something did you like... give up on reading those at some point <laughs> oh, yeah I, I i honestly don't i didn't read too many of them because it was so overwhelming and they were always it, it was so personal to so many people it's the it's the biggest thing people talk to me about still to this day and it, again it was posted in 2014 it's like oh i absolutely love your stuff by the way i came out after you posted that video what's that feel like it's it's it was like unintentionally the best thing I've ever done with my life, which goes to show you that you never know what's going to to alter your life, or you never know what you're going to do that could change things forever for for better, for better, I guess, not even for worse. Just for just it could change anything. So it's 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 crazy. I would have never expected it. it expressing
3: truth in an appropriate way at the right time with the right words is i mean does it get any more to our core of authenticity and connection Mm. than that and yet it can be so terrifying
4: i know i know it's strange how you can like it it, it's strange how you can know the answer but you're just too afraid to face it even though you know it's not going to change so i Yeah, it was such a learning curve from that point on, because again, it was like the beginning of something new. I I look back at, I have an archive of my my age 17 up until now 29. I have an archive of videos, my voice, my interests, my appearance, everything. And when I look back on some of the early videos, it's like I don't even recognize that person, because that person wasn't really being themselves to a certain extent. So I see some of the things I was interested in, and I'm like, was I really interested in that or was I just interested in that because I was trying not to be interested in something else? You, does it make you sad? A little bit. It makes me... It makes There There have been times where I feel like like I've have I, I almost missed out on things that I could have had if I had just either had the bravery or I guess more so that I, the world had been more accepting. So with anything, it's more... There's a little bit of anger towards myself, but also just towards the world for not, for being such a cold place sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this one, like, I think that's why now anytime I I meet young queer kids who've told me they've come out, I'm like so elated for them because I'm like, oh, you're never going to have to have that level of regret. You'll you'll never have to experience that. And it's why I'm grateful to the older members of the the queer community because I'm like, you made it easy for me to come out at 20. A lot of people yeah. don't even ever come out. I came out at 20. So then th- it's the realization of that, of like, maybe I missed out on a little bit, but it's a full life ahead. Yeah. And it could be so much worse. Like I have a whole, like my my privilege in my story is fruitful. It's everywhere. Um, so to even be able to, to sit here in front of this microphone and tell that story is, that's you know, a privilege in and of itself.
3: Have you ever crossed paths with any of the s- Stonewall um,
4: participants? I, so I actually, YouTube did a documentary about Stonewall and I got to play, um, they did like, uh it was like the real people, but then um, people in, in the modern queer community got to be like the face of them. Um, and I got to play one of the main, um, he was like a, a main journalist there, but... Uh, uh, yeah, and it was. It's interesting to talk to to talk to him because he's much older now, and to hear his experience and to see just the pure difference in just oh, a few decades, life threatening for yeah. them. Yeah, and just in a few a few decades, really, it's not a lot of time. So no. it's pretty surreal. I get it's pretty surreal to think how far we've come so quickly. Yeah, as a community.
3: Talk about your battles with uh, depression. What's it like when? it's at its worst. Is it triggered by events or is it just kind of a biochemical thing that comes and goes or something that you
4: don't know the the source of it? Gracie, come here. (laughs) Gracie, but I want to come here. Um, I, I read about this a lot because I, I try to, I try to put people in the shoes of what it's like to be a depressed person. I have a chapter in the, the new book called Tulip where I, I depict a very clear depressive episode from like the moment i'm i'm in it laying on the couch to the moment i'm out of it still laying on the couch in the same spot and what it's like what it, the feeling it's like um, and you know it's different every time it's different for every person so by no means is this everyone's experience but for me it's just it's this numbness it's this uh this lack of being human this lack of being emotional this lack of of everything this lack of self it's just like a coldness and an emptiness mm-hmm. in a strange way but the more the more i had that feeling the more i could recognize it and you almost just have to wait out a storm in a strange way it's like seeing yeah like a, a shadow or something and being like oh, i just have to wait till the sun's up mm mm-hmm. sometimesways it little suns up and you you know you're in it, and you don't know there's no like real fix to get out of it mm-hmm. and it's crippling and it's again it's it can happen any time it's it's just not <laughs> it's not pleasant <laughs>
3: it's it's like a experiencing a stalker that at some point has someplace else to be mm. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm' You think, oh, I've, you know, I'm feeling good. I've gotten away for it, and the doorbell rings. Mm-hmm. Remember me? Mm. You thought I couldn't
4: find your address? Mm. Yeah, and it's a, yeah, it's a tough one. Like I, I struggled with that for many years, and many years after coming out too, which was kind of shocking that it, it lingered that long. And in a weird way, I thought, oh, this is because of my my struggles with identity that that was like a side effect of it but then when it lingered afterwards i'm like is this just who is this just like a facet of who i am mm-hmm. am i you know a depressed person or am i a person with depression which one is it and it took quite a long time a lot of therapy a lot of self exploration to 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 figure out that and to figure out self or to at least to make an attempt to figure it out
3: and did you come to the conclusion that that you were a depressed person or a person with depression
4: i again wrote about this a lot but i like actively have decided to not put the negative word before person that i am a person with depression i'm a person who experiences anxiety but i don't want to give power to such a negative identity i think it's i think it's okay that you know i i love that everyone wants to to you know normalize mental illness but I don't I don't think we want to make it normal. You don't want to like you don't want mental illness. You don't want it to be your story. It can be a part of it. Right. And and your identity. Exactly. And it's it's a sensitive thing. Like I I I I, I think that that takes that t- that took me a lot of time and it's taken me uh a lot of efforts to feel that way towards it of like I may have it but it's not me. Right. Yeah.
3: Andrew Solomon has I think my favorite quote on what on depression. He says, "The opposite of depression isn't happiness; it's vitality."
4: Mm. Interesting. I think that's where we get it wrong too, as a society, or that's where a lot of people get it wrong. Is this is this like desire to always be happy, or to think happy mm-hmm. is the normal? Whereas it's it's not it's not about it's not about that at all i feel like i don't know what i feel like there's a level of like being content or being peaceful or just being present that you should be but striving for constant happiness is one irrational and impossible yeah but it's all it's also just like again we talked about this before we were even um talking on here of just like But who wants to listen to someone who's happy all the time? You want to experience the spectrum of human emotion. Mm -hmm. That's where, like the real, the real. As a vegetarian, I hate that. I'm going to say this: the real meat of it is, (laughs) Mm -hmm. is that's where that's like where the fruit lies. Is like all the spectrum: the sadness, the elation, the excitement, Mm -hmm. everything. It's it's such a difficult path pursuing
3: quote-unquote happiness and it took me years to realize that happiness most of the time is fleeting and a byproduct of the search for meaning purpose truth and connection
4: definitely i agree
3: would you do us a favor and read a section of house fires of
4: course let's see do you actually – I'd
3: like to hear the – I know you have something else selected. Can you find the, the – The tulip thing? one? Or yeah, a, yeah.
4: I thought I, I was going to actually – I was like, that could have been a good one. Let me see. I think it's – I know the picture I picked. I actually took a – a lot of these, are, I have film photos within the book, and a lot of them were just taken in the heat of the moment. But this one I specifically took of a tulip to, like, commemorate It. where is tulip tulip is page 15 do you
3: have a favorite photographer
4: um i actually follow i'm trying to think i follow a lot more they would hate that i would call them this but they're like instagram photographers that aren't Mm -hmm. any by any means uh world renowned but they like any any photographer i'm following on instagram i i love to a certain extent a lot of film photographers a lot of like editorial photographers um, but this is um Tulip chapter Two. I'll read a little bit of it. I'm, I'm very bad at reading aloud. my audiobook was such a difficult process, <laughs> but I'll give it a go. Uh, Chapter two, Tulip. coming to curled up tightly on the edge of my couch, lit only by the remaining glow of the day's sun barely visible behind the February gloom, shrunken so small into myself. Like a piece of arugula moments after resting on a scolding cast iron pan my eyes lift examining the room around me i don't remember what got me here exactly but i do know this feeling far better than i'd like to admit although it's not an uncommon feeling and i very well know i felt a similar shade of it away before it does surprise me how unfamiliar a regular acquaintance can remain. This, however, feels worse than usual. Much worse, actually. Also, as if I'm paralyzed, immobilized in a stage of deep nothingness, I can't connect any of my thoughts scatterbrained by my own mental state. My phone lies on the plush white rug just below me. I haven't cleaned it in forever, and being face to face with it would typically irritate me, but now I can't fathom caring. It must have fallen out of my hand as I drifted in and out of sleep. That tends to happen when you get this way. The days or days if particular the day or days, if particularly unlucky, meander by while I open and close my eyes. No hunger, no thirst, no desire to fix this messy state of void. I manage to pick up my phone, and I'm immediately reminded. I let someone know this was probably going to happen by message of, Oh no, Khan, I'm so sorry. Can I come over? You're not responding. I'm coming over. Shit. I hate when I let other people know that I've hit a depressive spiral. It's embarrassing. Even though I know it shouldn't be, and my therapist reminds me otherwise every goddamn appointment... It is. It makes me feel weak, helpless, a waste of everyone's worries. I have a habit of letting people know when it's gotten bad, but then swiftly refuse any help or rational words words they provide, which always manages to make them even worse. It's like I figured out how to reach out for help, but I still haven't quite figured out how to receive the help I've asked for.
3: Dude, so fucking spot on. Oh, no, so great. <laughs> thanks. So great. Thanks. And I so relate to the part of just not wanting to be metaphorically touched.
4: Yeah, it's tough.
3: It's it's like a dog that has an injury and just goes into the corner.
4: Yep. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's 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 a. It's visceral. like I rem- like reading that I, I, I I'm present in that moment, even though I've forgotten a lot of those times because depression like makes your memory hazy. Moments like that I can remember so strongly and there is this like strong desire for someone to help me. But as soon as they meet that desire, I I, I run away from it. Yeah. I'm almost offended that they like cared at all. So my friend coming over in that story. I was just like, oh, "Fucking hell! Why are you coming over?" Even though I asked for it, like <laughs> it's just like the, it, it. Nothing makes sense. Nothing. It,
3: in those moments, do you feel like you're being overly dramatic? I'm talking about the mean part of your brain talking to you. Hundred percent.
4: Oh yeah, I'm. I'm very. I'm very aware. I, I most times I'm aware in the moment, even though I can't help myself. It's like an impulsion that I have to be. I have to tell them like, "No, don't come over," even though I told them just two seconds ago to come over. But it's in hindsight where I, I go on this giant apology tour. I'm sorry for acting that way. I'm <laughs> sorry for I'm sorry for doing that. Woe was me? I I did all like. I am very aware that, and then it makes it more dramatic by being on this apology tour where no one cares enough. They're like it's fine. It doesn't matter. So I'm very aware. It's almost like you can't stop yourself. It's like word vomit, action vomit. You can't. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> and what do you think that that speaks to
3: our fear of being a burden? Mm,
4: I think so, yeah. I think it was... Yeah, I think no one wants to... No one want, I think there's this fear of being the burden, but then also... What happens to the burden when the person doesn't want to deal with it? So it's like if I tell you too often that I'm going through a rough time, at what point you're going to say this friendship isn't worth it? This person isn't worth it? So I think it's this fear of the future of being a burden on someone yeah. too long. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a it's a difficult one. I don't I don't fault the people in those years that like shied away, but I hold close to the f- very few people that. That stuck, like really stuck through it.
3: It's so great to have a network of support. You know, it's not that it's bad if you only have one go-to person, but it, it sometimes it can be a lot to be that person. And sometimes I've been that person for somebody, and that that person. Doesn't want to do anything. Doesn't want to seek any kind of help, and it can be it
4: can be tough. Um, it can be draining. Totally, I know. I, I almost have to remind myself um, at times when I have people close to me that are going through a similar thing of like, <laughs> like this is this you you know what it's like to be that person in that position. You know what it's like to not like that. It takes so much time. They're like at times they're going to be a little bit nasty and they don't mean it. At times they're not going to uh, take your your advice, and you just if you care about them, you just got to stick it out and know that that's not really them half the time. It's it's a version of themselves they wish they weren't, even right. a version of themselves that can change
3: too. It's it's frustrating when it's somebody who can't embrace that it might be something other than just the circumstances of their life and that it's a death sentence and they're they're kind of crossing that line into self-pity and chosen helplessness that that can be really tough because there's there's such a fine line between giving somebody the dignity to express their experience and how they are experiencing with it without putting labels on it without putting a schedule on it and and just being somebody that is drained and getting the feeling that they don't want to hear anything you have to say that they just want you to be an audience member
4: people yeah and people love the myself included it's like you love to tell people like the hard time you're going through but you don't want the advice or you don't want them to tell them tell their hard thing they're going through it's so it's such a sick cycle and it is again it's a sickness it's a mental illness like you you don't want to participate in but you can't help yourself um so it just it really does have to be handled with care from both ends and it's tough, like it is it is a tough one to go through um to be in or to to experience on the outside too, so yeah. it's like i I handle it with empathy and grace, but God is not easy a lot of the time, yeah, from He's... either party again, from like experiencing it or having it happen around it. it's so tough it is tough, yeah, Condor,
3: thanks so much for coming and sharing your life and uh congrats on on your new book, thank you, and uh all the all the work you do and all that advocacy and uh and claiming your truth it's it's such a
4: beautiful thing to hear thank you so much thanks for giving me an outlet to to speak my truth too this was a really really nice really nice um podcast Fiona. i appreciate it
3: and if people want to uh know more about you if they're not aware of you yet where can they find you
4: so um Well, first of all, my book publisher would love this. My new book is out everywhere. You can get it anywhere books are sold. If you like the way I read it, there is an audiobook as well. So you you can go check all those out at ConnorFrantabooks.com. That's N N O R, the correct way to spell Connor. (laughs) Let's isolate the (laughs) Connors. The the most controversial thing you've said in our interview. I know. Oh, my gosh. And then um, I make uh, make YouTube content along the similar lines. Very open mind, very present. So uh, that's Connor Franta on YouTube, Connor Franta across all socials. That's me.
3: Dude, thank you so much. No worries. I really enjoyed talking to him. I always love meeting new people, Uh,
4: especially people that are uh,
3: emotionally intelligent and have a lot of shit to say. So go check his
2: stuff out. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
1: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
3: Let's dive into some surveys. Uh, I'm not sure I'll get through all of these. I don't know why I got to alert you to that fact. Because I'm afraid you're going to judge me even though you can't see how many i've got chosen this is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself just a leaf on the wind she identifies as pansexual she's in her 20s was raised in a stable and safe environment uh ever been the victim of sexual abuse some stuff happened but i don't know if it counts Uh, i would absolutely say that this counts she writes when i was eight my best friend at the time Made me do some weird stuff. She would make me strip down naked so she could draw me. She would often pretend that she was my boyfriend when we played together. At one point, she backed me into a wall and started to molest me. She wouldn't stop even when I threatened to break her arm. She was only a year older than me, but a lot bigger. I dug my nails in and gave her a serious Indian burn until she stopped touching me. She never tried it again. By the way, can we find a different word for that? Um, She never tried it again, but after that, she found a new group of friends and completely shut me out. I never told anyone until two years ago because we were really young. I don't know if someone in her family was abusing her or what, but I still feel like I can't fully blame her. One of the reasons why I wanted to read that is, first of all, I'm so sorry that 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 happened to you. And it's so confusing when it's a peer, Um, but, you know, I it's important to look at this through the lens of what you experienced and what your feelings are around it, rather than, you know, is this person legally culpable for, for what happened? Because they're two completely separate issues. And a lot of times we will ignore processing it and giving weight to what happened to us um, because we're like, well, you know, they're not fully responsible. Well, that might, that might be the case, but it can still have been fucking awful and scarring for us. Um, Ever been physically or emotionally abused? I've had a lot of people in my life put me on a pedestal, which I guess is fine when it's people you don't know, know well. But for me, it's been close friends, family, and even teachers. I was always feeling like I had to live up to their expectations of nice, innocent perfection growing up. Even though inside I felt mean, tainted, and ugly, it created an identity war for me, and huge self-esteem issues. I constantly felt like I was behind everyone else and even into my adult life. Darkest thoughts. I used to self-harm and would often think that I deserved it. I can be an abuser to myself and have thought that I'm horrible, unclean, or broken. I've thought before about just getting it over with and having a breakdown so that I could finally have evidence of how I feel inside. I think so many people relate so deeply to what you just wrote. It's like we want, like we were talking about earlier in the podcast, we want our outside world to match our inside world so that we can feel seen and validated. And wanting to feel seen and validated is such a normal, human, healthy desire. But it's like when we're raised in environments where we are not seen or validated, and attention is always critical or conditional, um, we we try to uh, find other ways to feel seen and validated, and usually they're not they're they're not too healthy. Darkest thoughts: I used to self harm. Oh, I read that. Darkest Secrets. Growing up, I kept my hair cut the exact same way as I wore it in late elementary up until my first year of high school. I was afraid that if I changed, people would notice me and realize that I was actually attractive and want to start dating me. I kept my clothes baggy and always wore a jacket because I'd get so anxious that I would sweat through my shirt. I self-harmed until two years ago and was afraid to wear tank tops and dresses. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being dominated or surrounded, uh, sharing that makes me feel a bit embarrassed. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To stop comparing themselves to me that I'm not perfect and that bad things have happened to me just like everyone else. I haven't been able to say this because they're depressed and I'm worried it might set them off. What, if anything, do you wish for a happy life with my loved ones? Have you shared these things with others? I shared them with two of my closest friends in college and received a lot of love and support. I think I finally started to heal then. How do you feel after writing these things down? When I started listening to your podcast, I wasn't ready. But now I'm relieved and I'm finally healed enough to do this survey. I love reading that. I love reading that. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. Things do get better if you seek help. If you start to try and treat yourself kindly and surround yourself with good people, maybe not immediately, but one day you'll look back and realize how far you've come. My moment happened when I realized my scars had faded enough that I could wear a tank top last summer. Thank you for that. I love when when a survey ends on on a positive note and somebody's starting to heal and silence that mean voice in their head. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Barbara Ann. And uh, she asks, how did you feel when your mother died? Well, my mother is still alive, unless you know something that I don't. uh, But we have not had contact in um, almost 10 years. Um, Actually, I have not talked to her um, on the phone or in person in, in 10 years. We tried writing letters for for a while, but uh, she wouldn't respect the boundaries that I uh, asked her to respect, and so I eventually had to put my mental health first and and uh, cut contact with her. Um, and she she writes, "I ask because I'm having mixed feelings about my mom still being alive." Well, I'm not sure what those mixed feelings are, but um, I. You know, one of the things I heard a therapist say one time is sometimes it can be more painful. The death of a parent that we had a complicated relationship with can be worse than one that we had a consistent positive relationship with. And on the surface, that seems kind of crazy to me, but it also makes sense because... You know, when there's that cognitive dissonance, uh it it's so hard to know what we're feeling. You know, when my dad died, my dad was a guy that was he was not abusive, he was he was neglectful. He was a closet alcoholic and um just was trapped in his own head. And I just kind of subconsciously always had the feeling that, you know, I must not be interesting enough or um I don't know, I, but when he died, I i wouldn't say that I felt nothing, but I felt guilty that I didn't feel more. I don't think I really cried until a couple of months after he died. And, um, and I felt like a terrible human being for not feeling what I thought I should feel. And I guess all of that is to say, take away any expectations or ideas about feeling what you think you should feel we feel what we feel and what we feel isn't as important as what we do with those feelings do we find a healthy way to express them you know do i we identify patterns of health unhealthy expressions of our feelings but shit's complicated how about that i want that on my headstone This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself OK. She identifies as other. I spent 20 minutes trying to figure out what the answer to this question is. What does that tell you? Uh, She's in her 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She was uh, molested by uh, other kids in her neighborhood. Uh, And one of the reasons why I wanted to read part of her survey is it's such a great example of the complicated relationship that we can have with a parent. And uh, she writes uh, that she was both physically and emotionally abused. Uh, She writes, My dad was verbally abusive and angry on a pretty regular basis. He was a closeted gay man and former evangelist minister who didn't come to terms with his sexuality until after I was born, so he and my mom stayed together to raise me. When he was mad, he would take out what I'm sure was his frustration with his life by screaming about how sloppy and lazy my mother and I were. The most hurtful thing he ever said to me, however, was that he wished I was never born. I remember that at age five, my dad asked me who I wanted to live with if he and my mom broke up, and he pressured me to pick him. He used that to taunt my mother, and she came to me and said, Why don't you want to live with mommy? Oh, my God. Uh, Since dad hated things messy, I would spend hours cleaning and organizing every inch of my room, and show it to him, wanting praise for all my hard work, and he would just point out all the little things I'd missed. I remember crying and asking my mother why Daddy didn't love me. He did not get physically abusive until around middle school when I started having my own rage problems and would go into screaming fits and break things. He would slap me in the face and anywhere else he could reach. He especially hated it when I cried and would scream in in my face, that they were crocodile tears, mock me and hit me until I stopped crying. I remember in eighth grade, we lived in a four-story house, and he chased me all the way from the basement to the top floor. I was terrified and really felt like I was running for my life. I went into my room and shut the door, slamming my body up against it to keep him out, and he forced it open, pushing me to the ground. He said something like, let that be a lesson that you can't run from me. And here's the the part that I think, well, let me just read it. Any positive experiences with abusers? As bad as the above sounds, I don't think my dad was actually a bad guy overall, at least not all the time. The bad experiences were only half the story. I remember he would cook wonderful meals for the family as the stay-at-home parent of our household. He always told me that I could do anything I set my mind to and praised me for how smart I was. He was a huge Beatles fan, as am I, and we used to go on drives where we would play our favorite albums and just cruise. In high school, he used to drive me wherever I needed to go because I feared driving so much. He never once complained about it, and I think he liked driving me. He loved movies and TV, and we would obsess over our favorites together and repeat lines to each other. As weird as it sounds, I always thought of my dad as two people. The angry man who hated me and the loving, doting dad. He switched between the two in his behavior, so I guess I switched the same way in how I thought of him. Now I have struck a balance between disappointment with how he dealt with his problems and empathy about where it came from. He came from a horribly abusive family system and believed that his family would cut off all ties if they knew he was gay. He also dealt with weight issues his whole life and harbored a lot of self-hatred that was instilled by his abusive, eating-disordered mom. I think he was just so conflicted about his identity that it made me conflicted and confused about his identity, too. Thank you so much for that. Wow, that is such a common thing. You know, I, I kind of had that with with my mom, um, where I just never knew which mom I was gonna get. Um, was I gonna get the creepy critical mom, or was I gonna get the you know the one that lavished praise on me and told me how talented I was? It, it's a mind fuck, man. It is a mind fuck. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Goblin under a mossy rock, and she writes uh, today my dad called me a troglodyte. I have severe agoraphobia, and he got a few go- groceries and my medication for me. This word has three meanings: a person who lives in a cave, a hermit, and a person who is regarded regarded as being deliberately ignorant or old-fashioned. The third meaning offended me because, yes, I am definitely a goblin hermit who lives under a mossy rock in a cave, but I strive all the time to stay moderately woke on the internet. I had a realization that you can hate interacting with people without being an asshole. Thank you for that. And I didn't know that that's what a troglodyte meant. So thank you for educating me. And now I will start calling everybody that. This is from the love survey filled out by Billy. And uh, they write, I love the sound of rain on my grandparents' old roof. I love showing uninterested people all of the photos I've taken since I first got my camera at 11, year, 11 years old. I love that I'm the cool aunt who lives in a faraway exotic, exotic city. I don't know why I'm having trouble reading this. What well, belly's got me on edge? I love when my cat taps my nose to wake me so I can rub her head. I love climbing into freshly clean sheets after getting a shower. Oh, that is a great one. I love trying on clothes that fit and are actually stylish considering my weight. Bonus points if the clothes are too big. I love the crack and pop of an old vinyl record playing in my little suitcase record player. I love when my dog curls up against me under the blankets. I love to hug people. I love to learn as many useless facts as I can, like... Do you know scientists? Don't know where eels come from? Uh, I love serial killer documentaries. me too. Me too. And I always feel so weird about being excited that a new one is out. I love comedy that pushes the limits. Risqué, if you would. I love having long platinum blonde hair that looks so pretty in selfies in the winter. I love wet paint. I love ribbon. Won't get to a state fair, my lady. And I love driving really, really fast. I do love that that thank you. Those are those are awesome. And I love that feeling of, of adrenaline when you're pushing yourself, whether you're skiing or driving, to, to where you're you're kind of scared and you're like, oh, this could this could go bad. This is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Ragdoll Rebel. Uh, He identifies as straight. He's in his 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, When I was five or six, a teenage neighbor made me insert my penis into her vagina on a dare from a group of other high school kids who were watching. Whenever I try to tell my closest friends about it, instead of getting a hug, which I so desperately need, I'm usually offered a high five. That's just the way the double standard of female on male abuse goes, I guess. Sadly, that is true. I can't tell you how many times I've read a newspaper article about you know a teacher um, violating a you know thirteen or fourteen year old boy, and the comment section is just you know guys, mostly guys, talking about how you know lucky that kid is, and uh, I don't think I've ever heard a woman uh, say that kid was lucky. I think that's starting to change, though. I think men are starting to uh, speak up more and say, hey, that happened to me, and it was not a fucking... Even though, you know, maybe... I. my body felt good. My, my soul did not feel good. It's, it's amazing how our body and our soul can feel two completely different things at the same time. Darkest thoughts. My normal everyday thoughts of suicide are sometimes followed with the idea that if I were to ever act on these thoughts, I would try to take as many of the opposite sex with me as some sort of revenge for driving me insane. Darkest Secrets. My life is so lonely and devoid of any meaningful connection with women that sometimes I think about having sex with other men, to the point that I often look at the male-seeking male page of Craigslist just to see what's out there as a way to keep my options open and battle the hopelessness. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm attracted to transgender women. I'm ashamed that I'm not brave or confident enough to admit it for fear of being viewed as a homosexual, which I don't identify as, and being persecuted because I live in the Deep South. Sharing that makes me feel ashamed of being ashamed. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I love you. I'm too afraid of what they will say back, even if the feeling is reciprocated. Have you shared these things with others? No. I feel like no one cares about the plight of the lonely man. Anytime I try to express my loneliness and the deep despair it causes me to someone, it's often met with, you should go out more, or have you tried Tinder? Oh my God. I think it's time to expand your support network, whether it's in person at support groups locally or if those are few and far between online there's a website called in the rooms and i always forget whether it's dot com or org but there's all kinds of virtual meetings on all different kinds of um, topics and i think you would really benefit from finding some kindreds kindred spirits and getting the love that you that you deserve because Feeling that anger and that and that hopelessness, it's so poisonous. It's so poisonous. And you deserve better. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels like I'm shining a light into the darkness of my soul, but I know the batteries will run out soon and it will be dark again. Well, sending you a hug, man. Sending you a hug. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Anchi. She um, only filled out part of this. She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, was the victim of uh, sexual abuse, and reported it. Uh, My stepfather abused me repeatedly between the ages of 5 and 8. At the age of 15, I reported it, went through a grueling court case, and he was sent to prison on two charges for 18 months. 18 months 18 months I've shared this before on the podcast but I was in a city in Iowa years ago and I was looking at a newspaper and there was two articles in it and one was uh, about a black man who had been ar- arrested with a pipe and a really small amount of drugs and he was sentenced to something like 8 or 10 years in prison and then there was an article about a white man who was convicted of sexually abusing, I think it might have been his, his daughter or some other child, and I think he got like six months in prison. He has been, or she has been uh, emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, my mother mostly through neglect. Any positive experiences with the abuser? Of course, I'm supposed to love my mother. Uh, well, that doesn't mean that you had <laughs> supposed to and what actually happened uh, are two, two different things. Uh, darkest thoughts. I think I'm a bad person and I probably deserved it. I think I probably invited the abuse in some ways. Um, darkest secrets. I still wet my bed. I hate sex and I like violent porn. Um, you are not a bad person and you did not deserve it and you did not invite it and it's funny because no matter how much somebody tells us that we have to think that and truly feel that for ourselves for for that to to sink in but i think it can help having a support network of people that that say that but it's it's like one person saying it once in my experience did not change it it took Tons and tons of meetings and and therapy and healthy people around me and letting them love me, which is so uncomfortable in the beginning. You just think, God, how low are their standards? (laughs) This is an awfulsome moment filled out by uh, Worms for Brains. Uh, They identify as genderqueer, and they write, One time I had to go to my GP for a physical before leaving the state for eating disorder treatment again for my bulimia i was in that exam room trying not to have a panic attack when my sweet doctor wanders wanders in and says hey girly you lose any weight on that null yet i am not a girl i had lost weight but not from the med the med was only prescribed because i was self-harming and drinking myself to death to cope with my bipolar i burst out in laughter as she read my chart and realized why I was there. Blushing and clearly embarrassed, she waved the chart around and said, Man, i got to read these things before I come in. It was the first time I genuinely laughed in probably weeks, if not months. That is an awfulsome moment, and uh, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, and then finally, this is uh, from the love survey filled out by feeling like <laughs> undescended testicles. Uh And they write, I love seeing a parent, especially a dad, being present and loving and visibly enjoying being with their kid. I love that I was depressed all week, but after getting exercise yesterday, I've been feeling giddy and full of energy, and I made so many people laugh. I love being able to appreciate other people's smiles or laughs or beauty in general. I love that there's so many episodes of the podcast that once I've listened to all of them, I can just start again from the beginning. I love looking at my girlfriend across the room and the way she blushes and casts down her eyes when she catches me admiring her. I love how fondly my best friend looks at her old sick dog. I love the sound of pigeons cooing in the early morning. I love when I'm in the mood for sex and allow myself to be a little wild in bed. I love my mom's hands. And I love when I can feel trust for the universe and believe that it's going to guide me someplace good if my intentions are good. Those are awesome. Those are awesome. And that intentions, becoming aware of what our intentions are is such a healthy, important tool to cope with life. I don't think I was... I think I was like... 45 when i first really started to look at my intentions i don't think there's anybody we lie to as much as ourselves and um yeah that was that was really helpful for for me but thank you for those loves man those are awesome and thank you to everybody who who fills out surveys or donates to the podcast financially which you can do at the website um I just really appreciate it and I hope if you're out there and you're feeling stuck that you know that you are most definitely not alone and thanks for listening.
2: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful fucked, fucked, bizarrely bizarrely fucked up in some weird way. bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.